By show of hands, how many of you have heard of the phenomena which is called Alex from Target? Good. The majority of you here. Shh. If you don't know, I'll explain. So while I'm on vacation last week in Tennessee, I'm driving, and I find, well, I'm not driving, I'm, I'm just surfing the internet somehow, and I stumble upon the fact that there's a guy named Alex who works at Target, and as he was working at Target innocently, someone snapped a photo of him and uploaded it to Twitter with the caption, yo, because they thought he was really fine. So, this innocent young man has no idea that he's, he has this picture taken of him while he's working at Target, checking out their items or whatever, and then people are reposting it like crazy. Within six hours, he has over 100,000 new followers. Within 12 hours, he has 400,000 new followers. So at the end of the work shift, all these like little you know, teenage girls are coming in and like giggling and stuff and like, and they're like looking at him. He's like, has no clue because his phone was dead until people told him, Alex, I, I think you're famous. It's like, what? So he looked at his phone and then he has all these followers out of nowhere. Like I said, over 400,000 followers. He's up to 720,000 followers on Twitter, 2.3 million followers on Instagram right now. And he posts, am I famous now? That was his first tweet. He goes on the Ellen show the next day. Like this guy literally out of nowhere last week just happens to be famous just because someone thought he was cute, posted it, and it just went viral. And people are posting all these memes and stuff and like, I want him to check me out and whatever. <laughs> it's awkward stuff. And actually, according to Google Trends, he in this past week has been searched more on Google than Nash Greer and Justin Bieber. So... <laughs> Apparently, this guy's famous. Why do I bring that up? Well, I think it's, what's interesting to know is that we are bothered by this because this guy, Alex, has become famous for doing literally nothing. Some people work their whole lives to obtain fame. Alex just was checking out some, you know, groceries or whatever it was at Target, clothes, whatever you buy at Target, I don't even know. But someone took a picture, he became famous. Well, in our culture, what's weird is now you can become famous for doing nothing. And everyone has a reality TV show. Everyone has their own little video they post on YouTube of their cat dying or whatever, and they think that that's going to go viral. <laughs> and I think, I think a part of that is because everyone feels entitled to things. It's not enough to to play on the basketball team, you have to win an award, even if it's a, if it's a participation award. I never liked the participation award, personally, because I felt like it was just like, oh, well, you get something. Here you go. You didn't do well, but we need to give you something. And I think what's, what's interesting is that social media has become so popular and so addicting just because you can instantly be rewarded for doing nothing. So you post a picture of yourself or you post whatever on you know, a status, and people like it, and you get affirmation, and you, you get rewarded for doing very little effort. And so what it seems like is that fewer people are being affirmed for being virtuous, and instead, the virtuous thing to do for people in our day and age is to affirm everyone for everything. Let me say that again. Instead of 
we rewarding those that are virtuous, people that actually do stuff with their life, now the virtuous thing to do, the good thing and the right thing to do is to make sure everyone feels affirmed. Everyone feels rewarded because they're intrinsically good people, or that is the common belief system. And so now what happens is you'll, you'll say things like, Susie's wearing white after Labor, Labor Day, hashtag so brave. You know, you just like, you, you find things to commend people for. I, I remember when I was in high school, I don't know if they, did, they actually did this, but they wanted to stop correcting in red ink because red is negative and they don't want to make anyone feel bad. And they, they got rid of the minus Actually, in uh, Brookdale, where I went to college, they got rid of the minus, so you, just, you only got an A because they didn't want you to feel negative about your grade. I also think it's funny, whenever you, if you've ever met a, a famous person before, or you've had a conversation, you said hi, you got an autograph, at some point in your life, for very minimal effort, we think they're like the greatest person on earth. If they're nice to you, it's not they're nice to you, they are the nicest person ever. They said hi to me. Oh, man, he's so cool. Like, you don't know if that person's really a jerk. You just reward them for very little effort. And this belief stems, stems from something called humanism. Humanism is the belief, and we're actually learning stuff today. This is great. Humanism is the belief that people are intrinsically good. At the very base of all things, we're all deep down good people. And this has affected modern psychology so that people like PhD neuropsychologists uh, Rick Hansen has this to say. Throughout history, people have wondered about human nature. Deep down, are people basically good or bad? Recently, science is beginning to offer a persuasive answer. When the body is not disturbed by hunger, thirst, pain, or illness, and when the mind is not disturbed by threat, frustration, or rejection, then most people settle into their resting state. A sustainable equilibrium in which the body refuels and repairs itself and the mind feels peaceful, happy, and loving. So basically all that to say that you are distracted. That's why you act out in anger. It's because you have all this clutter in your mind. And if we get down to the base of you, you get rid of all the clutter, all the distractions. You are a peaceful, happy, and good person. So that when you act badly, or wrongly, you're acting out of character. That's not really you. It's not really your character to be angry. It's just that you have situations happening to you or circumstances happening to you that cause you to act out of line. But this poses a problem and leads to absurd conclusions because if everyone is basically good, does that mean that Hitler was also basically good? That he wasn't just an evil person but he was just sick or something in his upbringing led him not to be sinful, but just to be mistaken. And that causes us to reevaluate the nature of evil itself. Evil doesn't become a thing. Sin doesn't become a thing. It's just that we're all just confused and distracted. And that's a very dangerous way of thinking about things because the Bible says that in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, there is none who does good, no, not one. Not anybody. Romans 3.23, all you guys know this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. And so because the world is so full of sin, not just people that are mistaken, people that are confused, but because there's an evil, sinful world out there, 
the church, people that call themselves Christians, needs to be set apart. We, as a church, really should, if we claim to have changed lives, we claim that Jesus has come down, forgiven us of sin, so we're freed of sin, shouldn't we live lives that reflect that? Shouldn't we live a life that looks so different from the world? If we really say that we have the truth, we are living the right way, and God tells us how to live our lives, and we're becoming more like him every single day, shouldn't our lives reflect that? And shouldn't the church be so distant from evil? As the Bible says, be holy for I am holy. Not being jerks, not being like, I, mean, I remember working at the gas station years ago, and the worst people that would come in as customers were not the secular atheist people. It was the Christians. They would come in and they're like, oh, I know your boss. I go to his church and blah, blah, blah. And, and they're like the rudest people ever. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I saw you at church. And like, oh, 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 Alan, yes, yeah, you, you lead the junior high group, don't you? Yeah, so like now they're nice to me. But some of the meanest people can often be Christians. I think oftentimes Christians aren't living Christ-like lives, but feel the need to act the Christian life. So instead of actually being loving, we pretend to be loving. Or we pretend to be forgiving. When someone hurts you, and you're like really mad, you're like, but I have to act in a Christian way. That person totally stole my girlfriend or my boyfriend or, you know, cheated on me or whatever. But because I'm a Christian, I need to act as a Christian would act. Or I read this in the Bible that I have to forgive them, I have to love them. So I'm going to do it because the Bible tells me so. Versus letting it be flowing, your, your actions flow out of your character. Just like the Bible says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In the same way, our actions should be spontaneous and flow from our character so that we don't feel that we have to pretend, act, or, or do something that is outside of our norm. So I have two questions for you because oftentimes there's no real change in our lives. And we're just pretending. So number one, what kind of person are you? And number two, what kind of people does God call us to be? So what kind of person are you? What kind of character do you have? Do you live it or do you act the Christian life? Or are you just pretending? And number two, what kind of people does God call us to be? Because when you investigate it, if you think about it, okay, Alex from Target rose to fame, but when you investigate his life, there's nothing particularly special about him worthy of that fame. So is that like you? That you've been putting on all the Christian attributes, you've been pretending, you've been coming to church and you've been raising your hands, you've been saying amen, and you've been going to the Christian school and you've been doing all that stuff. And from good intentions too, I'm not saying that you have bad intentions, you want to fool people, but you, you're just working so hard at pretending that you're afraid of being exposed one day. You're afraid that someone will see that deep down inside, you are just putting on an act. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is what we're going to read. We're going to read a story of a guy who had to cover things up. And that, we know, is King David. King David. It says in verse 1, and many of you already know this story, but it's worth going over again. It happened in verse 1 
in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house and from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity. And she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. So David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab said to Uriah, Send Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of, the Lord, of his lord and did not go down to his house. So when they told David saying, Uriah did not go to his house, David said to Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and, and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So David was supposed to be going out into the battle, and yet he stayed back in Jerusalem. And we don't know exactly how this came about, but we don't know actually if Bathsheba was seducing David. We don't know if, if Bathsheba was on a mission to bring David down. The Bible isn't clear about that. It doesn't say. What we do know is that the opportunity was there and David gave into the opportunity because he thought no one else saw, no one else was looking. And so when he should have been out fighting, he was idle and he was staying back. And it was in that moment, in that time, that he saw Bathsheba coveted her, wanted her, and then he slept with her, and then she was pregnant. Once she became pregnant, he had a choice, as we all have a choice. Whenever you sin, you always have a choice. Whenever you make a mistake, even if it is just a mistake, you had no idea, you still have a choice. I was rock climbing on Monday. I just got back from Tennessee. I literally got out of the car, dropped off my friends, and I drove for 12 and a half hours, went to the rock climbing gym, opened up my door and banged this other dude's door so that I left a mark. And I was like, really? Why? Why is this happening? And it's like a flash of lightning went through my mind. It's like, because you're teaching on integrity this Friday, Alan. I'm like, no, why? So I'm, I'm like rationalizing. I'm like, I don't have to tell anybody. I don't. It's really not that bad. And then so I like, I took hand sanitizer. I started like scrubbing off his, his door to wipe it off. I got off pretty, pretty good, but his car was dirty, so you see this giant, like, clean mark on the front of his bumper, and there's, like, dust all around it. I was like, this is really obvious that something happened. And so I'm thinking, I was like, well, if I tell him, then he's going to, like, think it's a big deal, and then he might get mad. But if I don't say anything, you know, these things happen all the time. So why, why am I even stressing? Like, if I bring him out here, he's going to be like, you are being ridiculous. Why are you telling me all these things? I don't care. Get out of my, get out of my face. So. This is why, you know, all these things are coming into my mind at the same time. I go in the rock climbing gym. I'm, I just shut it out. You know, I'm not going to think about it. Whatever. 
And it just like kept on nagging at me. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. I will find the person and I will let them know. So I found that person. I brought him outside. I was like, does anyone drive a Ford and a Ford Explorer, whatever? He comes outside. And I told him, I was like, listen, I'm so sorry. I was thinking. I opened my door. I nicked your car, whatever. And so he's like, yo, I don't, I don't, I don't care. It's like, dude. And they, so he looked at it. He's like, really? You're complaining about this? I was like, I know. I just felt terrible. So I had to do something. I'm sorry. And he's like, no, it's not a big deal. So I left with a clear conscience, and I got to know his name. And then I thought, maybe this is an opportunity to make a friend. And so I was like, touche, Lord. All that to say, these are the things that go through my mind on a daily basis. It's just like rapid-fire thoughts sometimes. But you can probably relate with that in that you have a split-second uh, decision as to what you're going to do. Whether you're going to act in line with how the Bible tells you to act, or you're going to just hide it and shut it out. And David decided to shut that voice out. And so what did he do? Well, he figured, well, if I have Uriah come back home, his, her husband, and he sleeps with her, then it's going to be all right. Because he's going to be like, oh, I have a child. And I just think about what a nightmare that would be. So then he tells Uriah to come off the battlefield and then says, you know, you've been, you've been working really hard. Why don't you just go home, you know, just perhaps sleep with your wife, you know, the normal thing you guys do. And Uriah says, how could I do that when my men, my friends are out there on the battlefield? And it's like a knock to the stomach for David because that's what he should be doing. So Uriah was a man of character, not King David. And in fact, what we find out is David's like, all right, I'm going to get him drunk. And even while Uriah is drunk, he has more honesty and integrity than David when he's sober. Because he still refuses to go home and actually sleeps right there in the palace courts. Later on, David organizes it so that Uriah is killed in the battle. But not intentionally, just made sure that he was in the front lines and that everyone would step back, everyone would pull back. He had this elaborate scheme so that Uriah would die and it would look like an accident. He had this elaborate plan and figured that no one would know. But it says, actually later on, after David is talking to uh, one of the battlefield guys, they come out over and they say, Uriah died. And, and David basically says, oh, this, this happens, you know, the people die. It's a battle. I, I get it. Just don't be discouraged. Tell Joab it's not a big deal. It says in verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We have to ask that question. No matter what you're thinking, whether it's right or wrong, you're like, oh, it's not technically bad. I, I, I don't think this is really that big of a deal anyway. Ask yourself, is this pleasing the Lord? Because the Lord is the one who sees everything. And your sin doesn't just affect you. It affects everything around you. And I want you to pay attention to what happens in chapter 12. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan, a prophet, to David. And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb 
which he had bought and nourished and grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare for the one, uh, prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord of Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of the Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? And it continues on about him doing this sin secretly, but God's going to punish him openly. And we see that happen throughout his lineage about the sword doesn't depart from from David's household. Why do I bring this up? Well, I think there's a couple lessons we can take from this. First of all, you are who you really are when no one else is around. The real you is not when you're in front of your friends in your best moments. It's who are you when no one else is looking. And this past week, like I said, I went on vacation in Tennessee and I hung out with my friends who aren't Christian and for seven straight days, I didn't talk to any Christians whatsoever, actually. I mean, I may have encountered a cashier at Starbucks that was a Christian. I don't know. I didn't talk to any Christian friends for seven days. And it's at that point where I asked myself, who am I really? And the answer actually scared me. I didn't go off sinning and partying and drinking, whatever. Don't worry. But... It was interesting to think about how easy it is to distract yourself from the things of God when you're not surrounded by the people of God. That's why, why Jesus sent the disciples in pairs of two. He never sent them alone into the world. Because when you don't have that friend to push you, to carry you forward, to exhort you, then you can become discouraged and then you don't see your own life and how you should be living according to the scriptures. You become your own kind of uh, mirror. And you look at it and you're saying, I guess I'm doing pretty good. And so I would read the word and I would fellowship. But I really had no one to share these things with because my friends weren't Christian. And I was just longing to come back, longing to come back and just talk about Jesus. And so I would call some, some of you guys. I called some of you guys. And I was just like, I need to talk about God. I need to do something. But you are who you really are when no one else is around. Secondly, choices shape your character. I think one of the most important lessons you can learn about choices is that when you make a choice to do good, it's easier to, to do good the next time. When you make a choice to do bad, it's easier to do bad the next time. And so that you always go in a spiral. It's never just one bad decision. That bad decision opens a door, many other doors, for more bad decisions. David would have never killed Uriah just simply out of the blue. Just, I'm going to kill one of my you know, mighty men. It's actually one of his mighty men of valor. I'm just going to kill him for no reason whatsoever. It's because of one small bad decision, being idle, which led to another bad decision, which led to another bad decision. If you ever notice when you're in sin, 
one bad decision that leads to another bad decision starts to feel like you're going full speed. At first, you're just inching towards the line of sin, and then you're just full speed ahead. You don't know how to stop it. And then you look at where you should be. You should be at this mark of holiness, but you just feel so far from it that you feel like you can never, ever stop, which is completely untrue, as we'll learn. But David couldn't even see himself as Nathan was exposing the sin to David by way of parable. David said, this man should be killed and did not see that he had become the very man that he was so angry about. Could it be possible that as we try to pretend and act a Christian life, that we become a person we never ever wanted to be? Because we always do it out of our own strength, out of our own effort, and never stop to ask ourselves, how far have I departed from the Lord? from his joy, and from his peace, and from his grace. J.P. Moreland has this quote. He's a philosopher, and he says, Character is shaped moment by moment in the thousands of little choices we make. Each day our character is increasingly formed, and each choice we make, we either move toward God or away from God. As our character grows, some choices become possible and others impossible. The longer one lives in opposition to God, the harder it is to choose to turn toward God. We see that actually with Pharaoh. He hardened his heart, hardened his heart, kept on hardening it until it was too late. And then he couldn't make that decision to go back. And we have to remember that people don't just have sex out of nowhere. It starts off with the little things. People then just like think, you know, I'm going to ruin my life right now by just becoming an alcoholic and abandoning my family and ruining every, every relationship I have. They don't make that choice. They don't make the choice to go out and just start doing heroin out of nowhere. And actually, if you just start doing heroin out of nowhere, you'd probably die. It's that intense. But people make small compromises. I'm just most some dope. Yeah, I'm just going to try it once just to see what it's like. I'm going to drink once just to see what it's like. It was really not a sin anyway, so I just, I'm going to try it. Make one bad choice. And it's easier to make another bad choice until you find yourself running in full speed and you have no idea how you became the very person that you said you'd never become. Maybe you have an alcoholic dad. You said, I, I'd never become like my dad. Maybe you have a, a person in your family or you, you know someone. You said, I would hate to be that person. And you found yourself to be that very person that you hated. But secondly, what kind of people does God call us to be? And this, for this, I'd like you to turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 in verse 6. The Apostle Paul says to Titus, Likewise, as he's giving all these exhortations, as he's going to be a pastor, as he's going to be an elder, likewise exhort, strongly encourage the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing integrity, reverence incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. I've heard it said before 
that you are the average of your closest five friends. Think about that for a second. The five closest friends of yours, you probably have the same sense of humor, same kind of like interests, dislikes, whatever. But you also act in a certain way. Your spiritual health probably is the average of your closest five friends. That's why the Bible warns that bad company corrupts good morals. We got to be careful about who it is that we spend our time with. And also, not to say that if you have lukewarm friends, that's, that's necessarily a bad thing. It's just, do you have any friend that's exhorting you in these things to be sober-minded, having a pattern of good works, doctrinal integrity, and integrity of the soul? It's important to have a person that's challenging you, pushing you, and to, to say, this is where you, you should go next. And this is where we got to go. We need to pray more. We need to encourage people more. We have to go out there and evangelize. And you know what? Sometimes it may feel awkward to talk spiritual things with your friends. And in fact, I think it's hardest to influence your group of friends. It's easy to go out there and evangelize the strangers because you know you'll never see them again. But the people you've had relationships for years, sometimes it feels weird to just talk about God out of nowhere because they see our hypocrisy. They see who we really are. A person on the street has no idea who we are, so we can just say whatever we want. We can act the part. We can be a Christian to them. But our friends, they know. They're like, dude, you just smoked dope last week. I was with you when you cursed last week. And you're going to tell me to read my Bible? Who are you? Oftentimes it's hard to speak into people's lives when, when we feel like they look into our lives and it's full of corruption. But we'll get to that in a little bit. First of all, he says a couple things. He says, be sober-minded. And David Gutzik notices that this word is sophron in the Greek, and it describes the man with the mind which has everything under control. Strength of mind which has learned to govern every instinct and passion until each has its proper place and no more. What passions are you letting control your life? Are you a person that's controlled by their desires and passions? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. You know what's the most upsetting thing with talking to a drunk person? I don't know if you've ever had a drunk friend or you've been around drunk people. But the most upsetting thing is that when you talk to them, you know you're not talking to them. You're talking to some other person. You know that's not really them. It doesn't matter what you say, like, are you hungry? You want to go home? You're like, they're just, they're not in their right state of mind. You could be preaching the gospel to a drunk person. I have. And you know that at the end of the day, it's not getting through because that's not really them. You're not actually talking to them. And it can be one of the most upsetting things. In the same way, in our spiritual lives, we're to be sober-minded so that we're not acting out of character. We're acting on the character of Christ Jesus. So that when people speak into our lives, we're not being controlled by our passions. We're not being controlled by other desires. But we're being compelled by the Holy Spirit. We're not being controlled by, by our, our uh, addiction to pornography or addictions to alcohol or whatever. And we'll say, you can be free in Christ. And like, yes, but I'm a slave to sin. Because you've become sober-minded, you're able to be free from those things. So are you being who you really are in Christ Jesus? Or are you letting other things control you. Many Christians are free, technically, but they're living as if they're still slaves. 
when the Emancipation Proclamation went out, said that everyone's free, there's no more slaves in America, people still lived as slaves because they had just been so used to it, they didn't know what freedom was. And maybe that's you. You've been living so long in bondage, you have no idea what it means to be free. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 says, And do this knowing the time, that now is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. There's a lot of us that are not sober-minded in that we're not conscious of the times that we're living in. We're not conscious of what God is doing in our lives. Thomas, can you stop talking, please? Thank you. We're not conscious of the times that we're living in because we're so focused on other things. And we can't be distracted. And if, okay, here's the thing. In Matthew chapter 25, there's a parable of the women that are waiting for the wedding. And they're just sitting there, waiting. And there's some that have their candles out. And there's some that have their candles out with oil in their extra vessels. What's the difference? All of them are going to the wedding. All of them are going to be ready whenever, except for the people that don't have oil in the vessels. People that have enough of the spirit to last and be ready at any particular time. Think about ripeness is that we're all going to, as we're remaining in the vine, we remain attached to Jesus Christ, we're all going to be ripe one day. But God is looking for the first fruits, the people that are ready at any particular time. Just like, you know, <laughs> you have, you have um, Starbucks puts out their red cups. Red cups tell you what? Christmas is near. In the same way, Christians are to be living their lives as if Jesus could come back at any moment. He also says we're to have a pattern of good works. Now, a pattern implies something that's repeated. It doesn't just, like, every now and then you're, you do something nice, your parents are like, oh my gosh, who is this person? It should be the norm that you have a pattern of good works. So are you blessing others, or are you just checking the box? And then you're just kind of like, well, I guess I have to, so I'm, I'm going to go out here and do this one thing or whatever. And that's actually the difference of what I've noticed is sometimes I'll think I have to have a conversation about Jesus with this person. So I check the box and I can tell people, yeah, I, I evangelize today. But more so, God wants to show his love through us. And that's what it means to have that pattern of good works that's driven by the Holy Spirit and what he wants us to do. Doctrinal integrity, which means to know the scriptures, to be in the word every single day. And then also, finally, it says, let nothing evil be said about you. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. 6.13 There's an evil day coming for each and every one of us. Now Sebag notes that this evil day he believes is a day when intention, desire, and opportunity all come together. What does that mean? Well, the evil day of the enemy is when you have an intention to do sin you have the desire to do it, and you have the opportunity to do it. If you have two out of the three, you're pretty safe. But if you have all three happening at once, you're in trouble. 
If you have the intention, like let's say I, I really want to get a Krispy Kreme donut. And I have the intention to. I have the desire to. I don't have the opportunity to because I have to drive to Pennsylvania to go to the cr uh, closest Krispy Kreme. Or let's say I'm in Pennsylvania, but I just ate like, uh, I just ate ribs. And I'm so full, there's no way I can eat a Krispy Kreme donut on top of that. Well, now I have the intention, I have the opportunity, but I don't have the desire to do it at this moment. But be aware of the day when all three of those things come together. We need to have the full armor of God ready for us. But how can you have a testimony that literally nothing evil can be said about you? When you think about that, isn't that ridiculous? Isn't it ridiculous that he says that you should be expected that no one says anything evil? There's a billion things that people can list about me. If I, I told you people like, does anyone have an accusation against me? All of you would have a riot. And all of you would charge me and like kill me or something. I don't know. You guys are mean to me sometimes. Just being honest. But he says, let nothing evil be said about you. And if you think about it, Jesus said a lot of things that seem pretty impossible, seem pretty ridiculous. If you look at the Old Testament, it gives you all these laws, commandments, and apparently we're not under that. But then Jesus comes on the scene and says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But let me tell you, if someone says, let me go one mile with you, you, you go two miles with that person. If someone asks for your clothes, you give them your tunic too. It would seem like Jesus is actually giving us more laws to fulfill. No? Isn't it ridiculous? Like sometimes Jesus is like, oh yeah, you just like love people and just forgive them. As many times as they hurt you, just forgive them more. Like the Old Testament law didn't say that. And Jesus gives us almost, it would seem, more commands. How is this possible? How are we supposed to do any of this stuff? How is it possible? And, and I think the very fact that it seems impossible causes people to try to pretend on their own strength to act the part rather than live the part because they don't know how to live the part. I have to act because I'm supposed to be a Christian, so I'm going to do the things a Christian does because I don't know how to do anything else otherwise. How in the world do we obtain the holiness that God expects out of us? Well, here's the good news, and this is where it all comes all stinking full circle. Going back to that first illustration of Alex from Target. We're all very critical about Alex from Target, but if you really think about it at the root of it, isn't it true of the Christian life? We're mad about Alex because he was famous for doing literally nothing. And in the same way in your Christian life, when you trust in Christ Jesus, you inherit everything by doing nothing. You inherit all the promises of God Everything that God has for you in Christ Jesus by trusting in him and you don't have to do a single thing. What is that? That's called grace. That, that means regardless of what you do, Christ Jesus has done. So this is what we need to know tonight. If you miss everything else, this is what you need to know. What you need is not a changed life. You need an exchanged life. God's not supposed to take your life and just change it and like, oh, we have a better version here. Like if you have a Bible that's been tattered and, and it's old and it's ratty and it's falling apart, you can go to the Bible repair store and they can try to like take back the lines that are faded. They could try to repair the Bible a little bit, but it's going to take a lot of work. Or you can just exchange it for a new one. You got a brand new Bible. And you see, this is the life that God expects out of us is not a life that's just kind of a little bit better than the life that we had. He wants us to live the life that Christ has for us because 
our life is hidden in Christ Jesus himself. So sometimes, this is what our mistaken notion is. We pray to God and we're like, God, give me love to love this person. God, give me your forgiveness so I can forgive this person. God, give me boldness so I can confront my situation. And that's all wrong. And this is why. It's because we're not supposed to get this little package called love from heaven that God's like, here you go. And then you just take it, you open it up and like, now I can love people. Instead, Christ himself is to be with you to go into whatever situation you have. So that God doesn't give you his love apart from Christ himself, but Christ is the love that you need. Christ is the boldness that you need. Christ is every single thing you need. So when you're in a situation and you feel like you don't know how to walk, that's okay because Christ Jesus can be your all in all. Think about it this way. If you're a little kid and you're afraid of some monsters underneath your bed, you don't go up to your dad and say, Dad, would you just really give me boldness? I want to go to my room and I want to confront the monsters under the bed. Would you give me a, a thing called boldness? You don't expect that out of your dad. Why? Because what you really want is your dad to go with you to check underneath the bed. In the same way, Jesus said, and God has said in the past, in the Old Testament, we see in the book of Joshua, he says, fear not, be strong and very courageous. For what? I will be with you. He is the great I am, which means whenever you have a lack, God has a supply. And if you trust in him, he will be all that you need. The question is, are you trusting yourself? Are you trusting in your own strength, your own power? And that, that's legalism. That's I can still work my salvation. I can still work to make this happen. Are you trusting in Christ Jesus to do the work for you? It's the difference between sitting and walking. What's the difference between sitting and walking? Well, when you're walking, you're relying on your own two feet to, to carry you through. When you're sitting down, all of your weight is resting on something else. And God's saying, if you take a seat in this car, I'm going to drive you, and I'm going to help you to walk the Christian life, not by your own effort, but, but, but by trusting in what I have done so that I can carry you through this Christian life. So you feel like you can't walk the Christian life, and it's true. You cannot do it. You feel like you can't evangelize? It's true, you cannot. You feel like you can't forgive someone? You can't. Christ Jesus can. And he wants to use you to be the vessel to show that person love. So it's not you taking something called love and you just pass it on to people. And I did my duty, I love that person. You're not asking what is right and what is wrong. You're asking what is pleasing to the Lord. That is the difference that changes everything. It will, it will radically change everything in your life because you're not looking upon your own effort you're looking upon grace it's by grace that you receive not of works lest any man should boast and this is what it says in, in verse 11 we're going to close with this titus chapter 2 verse 11 says for the grace of god that brings salvation has appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly righteously and godly in the present age looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. It's the grace of God that teaches us and it's the grace of God that motivates us. So what's this mean practically? By setting your mind on grace, the fact that God sees you as holy the minute you trust in him, the minute you say, Lord, I'm sitting down, I want you to take control. The minute you do that, the second you do that, God sees you as holy, as perfect, as righteous. That's it. That's grace. Not your own merit, not your own works. You didn't have to do anything. Just trust in him.
And from there, that should motivate us for genuine pursuit of holiness. So that everything just flows spontaneously. It's not like you're, you're thinking like, checklist, okay, now I have to go evangelize. Now I have to make sure that that person's blessed and okay. And you have this to-do list. And then you have more law than what you started with. Before it was easy. It's like, yeah, Ten Commandments, great. And now all of a sudden you have all these things like, Alan told me I have to go evangelizing this week. Alan told me I have to do all this. No. It's what is, what is going to stir your affections for Jesus Christ? It's not about reading your Bible one chapter a day, four chapters a day, whatever. It's how can I stir up my affections for Christ Jesus so I, I am excited so that when I act in holiness, it's just spontaneous. It's just flowing out of my character. You're not acting the part. You're living the part because you're exchanging the life that you have for the life that Christ has. So you wake up in your morning like, yeah, this is exciting. I want to go do stuff. And you don't need someone to tell you. You don't need to tell someone to tell you that you should be in church. You don't need someone to tell you that you should go evangelize. You're just like, I just want to do it. This is great. And you, it makes you excited because you know the life you're living isn't your life. You're like, I'm not like this. I'm always angry and I just love that person. I would totally just slap that person in the face, but all of a sudden I don't want to anymore. You know, I used to curse all the time, but now I don't want to curse. I don't know what's wrong with me. Well, that's because your life is now different. Because you've given that life up, you've crucified the old man, and now you're a new man. It's a wonderful thing. It's an exciting thing. Remember that Christian, Christianity is not marked by a big do, it's marked by big done. Think about this. This blew my mind this week. Check this out. And if you're a baby Christian and these things aren't exciting to you, I'm sorry. It's exciting to me. When God created the world, the first six days, he worked. On the seventh day, he did what? He rested. Great. When did God create man? On the sixth day, God created man. So that Adam's first full day was the day of rest. God did all the work, and on the seventh day, God rested. It's crazy. And it's the same thing for us. As we trust in the Lord, he does all the work. I remember, what's, I have a lot of gas station illustrations today. I was at the gas station, people would come in and they'd say, can I have like 34 cents of regular, please? And I'm like, really? Like, there's no way 34 cents is going to do anything for your gas tank. But I would, this would make me mad because they would always shortchange me too. They'd be like, 34 cents and give me like 15 cents. And it would always make me mad. So what I used to do, because I was like so nasty, I'd be like, all right, 34 cents, can I have, that? Can I have your change first? Can I just see your change? And be like, oh, well, uh, 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 can I just, you know, you put it in, it's only 34 cents. Like, oh, let me see, make sure that you have 34 cents. I assume you do. And they give it to me and it'd be like 28 cents. And like, where's the other, other six cents? <laughs> Whatever. And like, oh, I, I just, I guess I miscounted. I'm like, oh, that's too bad. And you're getting 28 cents of regular. And I would just click it and. I was terrible. But that's legalism. Legalism is you need to make sure that you have everything right so that you can approach God. But God says, you already have everything right because you trusted in the right person, which is my son, Christ Jesus. In conclusion, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Love this verse. Galatians 5, 1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. How can we live as Christians? And not act like Christians by exchanging the life that we have for the life that Christ has for us. Not pretending, not acting, 
but just saying, Lord, would you just take this filthy, rotten life that I have because I, I want the new life that you have. Not trying to conjure up joy and try to conjure up the feelings and emotions when we're in worship. Like, I need to feel stuff because that person's feeling it and we need to all just feel stuff because this is the time to feel stuff. But you're saying, Lord, I don't feel anything and I know apart from you, I can do nothing. So would you please help me to put away the old man and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads right now.